you know, I, I think it takes a lot of guts to, to step out from what you're used to mm-hmm. and express yourself in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, you know, the, for the people that do take that risk, man, those are the people that I like to fuck with. Like, those <laughs> are the people that excite me and that I, I like to talk to and interact with and get to know better because I think, you know, there's, uh, like I said on Twitter, like if you're a comedian who's never said something offensive or, or controversial and you've never had to stand behind it, I just don't have any respect for you. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to a few locals members. So I wanted to first say thank you to Joe Giannotti. Thank you so much for contributing to the community at Locals. Thank you so much to Dewdrop and to Jeremiah B. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, this week we have Josh Denny joining the podcast. Josh Denny is a comedian and like most good comedians, he's in a little bit of trouble. So we're going to talk about what he did to uh, to get canceled this week. <laughs> Enjoy the episode. So you've been a busy bee. Uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so I definitely I wanted um, I wanted to have you on the podcast even after you had me on yours because I just had a really good time talking with you. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't stop seeing you on my my Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> how's that going? It's going well, actually. I think, um, you know, I've had anybody who's sort of followed me on social media over the years knows that I, I am uh, uh, not it's not new for me to be a controversial person in terms of like the things I joke about or the opinions that I have. Um, and I've ha- I've had some stuff blow up in the past where it's sort of blown up and, you know, who you're characterized as gets drastically misrepresented. And I will say that even though this one is um, very volatile and very unpopular for some people, um, it's it's always better when you're trending for standing up for something you really believe in. And, you know, this is not a situation where I'm being misrepresented. Like, if you look at all of the press uh, surrounding everything that's happened, it, it all is everybody is pretty clear that my position is is the one that I really feel, you know, my position is. Uh, that I'm a, I'm anti-abortion and that I think, you know, we have to take a, a very hard look at, um, you know, how those laws, how the laws we have in this country sort of surround that topic. And, you know, this so so a lot of times when you sort of go through these cancellation moments, um, you're often misrepresented. And this is probably the first time it's happened where it's like, yeah, they don't like it, but they're not saying something that isn't true. Right. They're not misrepresenting you. I'm trying to find the tweet. I thought, I mean, first of all, I think it's important that people remember that you're a comedian, right? I feel like that gets lost so quickly. And I think where um, everyone started losing their minds was because, I mean, it was a fucking joke and it was like a spicy (laughs) joke. Oh, where is it? Yeah. I I essentially said, uh, well, I was kind of railing against all of the objection towards the heartbeat bill that was passed in Texas. And I said, um, and knowing that everybody would just go, everyone's argument is, is that so there are so many circumstances where people don't know it's six weeks. And so my mm-hmm. my sort of flippant comment was, spare me that nobody knows it's six weeks. And then I was like, whores, only whores don't know it's six weeks, <laughs> which obviously I know is, which obviously is not like a medical position. It's just me being flamboyant. It's me being, you know, 
uh, it's me being a shithead and and making a point. You you know being hyperbolic and extreme, which is what you know comedians sort of make their bones on exaggeration, right? Mm-hmm. You you take a you take a position or you take a view when it comes to a certain subject, and then you go to extreme lengths to sort of make your point. And so, um, but I always think it's funny when people try to take something like that that's sort of incendiary and then assign it to you like that's your position or that's your point of view versus no that's an extreme thing i said to make my point you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah people were like he doesn't understand biology it's this that and the other and (laughs) i was i particularly found it funny because i found out that i was pregnant at six weeks and mm-hmm. by default, my career, right? So it's like, but um, bump. But obviously, I was out of mainstream and not with anybody else. It's not that. But I was like, I, I don't know. Um, I get it, but it, it's a joke, right? So everyone was tagging yeah, me yeah, exactly. And they were like, exactly. you see what he said? Because we just did our episode. And I was like, it's fine. He's a fucking comedian. And I we just had our conversation of I like my comedy to be a little bit off the rails. Otherwise, what, are, what do you want to see? Right? Just a boring dialogue at that point. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then so it, it's it's interesting because, you know, when, when the, the people that and this became very evident very quickly, but the people that think differently from me. There is absolutely no restrictions put upon them for the language or the drastic exaggerations they're allowed to make in dragging me from my opinion. Mm-hmm. And so it's just so interesting to me that when you have a more conservative viewpoint, there's sort of this expectation that you do battle like a red coat in the Revolutionary War, that I'm supposed to stand up in single formation mm-hmm. and uh, fire, fire our rounds in a very gentlemanly way, <laughs> and that we're supposed to play nice and... I have a difference of opinion. I think cons- I think part of conservatives' problem is that they spend too much time trying to make um, educational sort of intellectual arguments when sometimes the people who think differently from you just need to be ridiculed the same way that you are ridiculed for what you believe. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it's but it's so interesting that people try to take something like that that's clearly like. I'm being flippant for for a reason and say, oh, that's your actual opinion. Like, of course, I'm aware there are circumstances where women don't know. When I was in high school uh, or right out out of high school, one of my best friends that I worked with wife and, and it's kind of funny because like we all thought she was pregnant because she looked pregnant. But you never tell a woman that she's pregnant before she tells you she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't like heavy. She was like round, like she was thin, and then her belly was round and firm, like she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so, a few of us even asked him, We're like, Nick, is she pregnant? He's like, No, nah, I don't think so. And then she had a baby. Wow. Um, and she had had her period all the way through. Holy cow. And, you know, and so, like, um, which we were a little skeptical about because she did come from a very religious family and they, you know, they weren't married. They had only been dating for a little while, but anyway, um, you know, so I have like from the time I was 19, I'm fully aware that there are all these extenuating, extenuating circumstances. But my moral position is that I think we have an overabundance of preventable abortion in this country. And I think we need to take a look. Like one of my favorite things is when people always hearken back to that famous Bill Clinton speech where he said, 
you know, he thinks that abortion in this country should be safe, legal and rare. But I think the data shows that the only way for it to be safe and rare is probably for it to be illegal beyond a certain point. And so, you know, I think um, I think Texas took a look at it. And who's to say that six weeks is the definitively right number? Mm -hmm. I think the reality is and what it what it comes down to is when you ask somebody what is the right number? Most women who have a very pro-abortion stance will eventually get backed into a corner and say, whenever the fuck I say it is. Well, that's not a way we can't really make laws that way. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you can't really say it would be sort of like, when is it OK to kill someone in self-defense? And you said, whenever I say it is. Well, the mm -hmm. court doesn't work that way and our laws don't work that way. Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good point. I think it's really interesting when people get in. I get I guess feel drawn to voicing certain opinions because I don't know if you agree but I feel like certain arguments are just never going to be won. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I'll, there's probably a small amount of people that are in the middle and they're like I don't really know how I feel about it. Maybe I don't have enough information. Um, I'm just ignorant to this conversation, so I'm going to pull myself out. And then you have people that have kind of made their decision based off of the evidence, and I don't feel like they're going to move. Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't I didn't assert the position to try to convert anybody. I just felt like it was something I wanted to make my position clear about. And, you know, I've always attacked it. It's amazing. There's two things that people assumed when when I took this hard stance is number one, they assumed it was a religious position, mm -hmm. which it's not. But my approach to it is much more legal in the sense of um, it's all it's the only kind of elective ending of a life that we allow in our laws, you know, and so there's no other circumstance where we allow someone to electively stop a life um, with their own discretion. Right. And there are many, many states where it's not even legal for somebody to make the decision to end their own life which I actually disagree with. I think if somebody has terminal cancer or something like that and they make the decision to want to end their own life, I think they have the right to do that. But there's no circumstance in, in America where anyone has the ability to make the determination to end someone else's life other than this. And so I think just from a cultural values perspective and from a legal perspective, it's, it's interesting that we make this allowance and we have this inconsistency in the way we apply law and the way we apply, you know, people's ability to um, have agency over themselves or other people. Mm -hmm. And that's always the debate. People go, well, this is an agency over a person because I don't think it's a person. Well, then we fundamentally disagree. There's no common ground there because it's like uh, the one thing that is undebatable. And this is why I kind of get away from the it, when is it a baby? When is it a person? When is it a thing? It's like, OK, the, un the indisputable as aspect of it is that you are taking measures to end a life. Um, and I just think that that is inconsistent with the way we apply law in this country and the way that we protect uh, people's individual rights. And, and I view that new life as an individual and, and an individual deserving of the same freedoms, liberties and protections that everyone else is granted and that every other law in our society tries to protect for people. And so um, the other thing is just from a pragmatic perspective of how many, you know, couples out there can't conceive, how many same sex couples out there um, biologically can't conceive. I mean, we have so many people in this country that want children. It's like, why are we getting rid of the inventory, you know, <laughs> and, and, the, and the data shows and the data shows that most of the time when you make these kinds of laws that people just take better precautions and they just use the technology that we have to prevent 
an unwanted or unplanned pregnancy. And so uh, going back to what I said, I, I think for it to be safe and rare, I, I think we have to take a look at maybe it can't be legal for it to be safe and rare. And certainly there, there are exceptions where I think obviously we'd have to make a an exception, right? Mm-hmm. If if a woman's life is in danger, then I think that's that's a decision that her and her physician have to be able to make without the the threat of persecution of the law. And it's, we make exceptions for laws all the time, right? It's illegal to drive under the influence of alcohol. But imagine you're a woman who's fleeing a rape and you're on your way to the police to report. You get pulled over and you're intoxicated. They're not going to give you a DUI under those circumstances, mm-hmm. right? You might have an asshole cop that tries to. But the, the reality is, is if you were fleeing for your life or your safety and you were under the influence, generally you will not be given or, or, or DUI would not be upheld um, in a courtroom. And so, you know, I, I think for me, it's more of a legal question of, you know, are we going to be consistent in giving people the opportunity to have life, liberty and pursuit of happiness or, or are we not? And um, I understand if somebody's opposed to me, like I did my friend Corey Adams podcast yesterday and he said, not only do I think we can, we should be able to decide it for the unborn or for young babies, we should be doing it throughout our society. So if elderly people aren't contributing, we should take a look at whack at them. And, <laughs> and if mentally disabled people are, are um, not contributing to society, maybe we should look at cleansing them. And I was like, okay, at least your line of thinking is consistent. I don't agree with it. But, um, you know, but and we're also two wild comedians who are sharing these uh, ideas from completely different viewpoints. And so, you know, for me, a lot of what I think makes comedians good is being willing to explore other ideas. I wasn't always a pro-life person. I was a very pro-choice person. And I uh, there's a if you go back and look at the Daily Wire article that I did or not did, but the interview that I gave last week. They linked the podcast where I talk with conservative comedian Adam Yenzer, and you can hear him kind of swing me on my stance in the podcast. And we talked for hours afterwards. And I said, man, you know what? You're you're not wrong. You're not wrong at the way you look at this. And if you consider this an individual life that's deserving of protections granted by our our, our American promise and things like the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. So um you know, I, I coming to that position for me was a journey. It wasn't something that I sort of did blindly. And and I think the problem we have with a lot of things in society is we sort of excuse away our sociopathy. We sort of say, well, it's technology. That's why we don't have to be nice to each other. And it's, you know, it's this. And that's why we don't have to be considerate of each other. And um, I think sometimes we just we allow ourselves to do the wrong thing because there are so many excuses for why it's easy. And we never question, is this really the right thing to do? Mm. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot there, right? So I, <laughs> I, I'm similar in the sense that I, my views on the subject are always evolving as I'm presented mm-hmm. with more information. I feel like I'm somewhat in the ignorant bucket when it comes to, if you were to keep whittling it down, why I think that what I think, right, it starts to the bottom starts to fall out a little bit. And where I where I have been was um, pro-choice and within limits, not to the full extent that some states have it, because I think that's absolutely wild. Um, where it's like up to their they can be crowning and they're like i don't want it yeah bash what do you mean yeah bash it in the head i know it's coming out but bash it i I changed my mind yeah like fucking crazy and that does happen yeah 
Um, uh, and there are people that take a very like they're like that should be okay too, and it's like yeah. ugh. I've met a and lot of people, I, and I'm like, what do you and mean? I, yeah, and I th- and I think to be honest, if I'm being very honest, Candice, I've I maybe it's because I live in Los Angeles, but. I've met so many people that think like that and those people disgust me and their selfish behavior in so many other ways that I, th- I think that's part of what pushed me to the other side of like, these are horrible fucking people mm-hmm. that have all sorts of justifications to put themselves before others. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if, if not agreeing with that view puts me on the other side of the table from those people, boy, am I glad to be on that side of the table? You know what I mean? Oh no, for sure. And, I don't really know what that's about. I've pressed some people and some people come actually come down to like a spiritual argument where they are their take on it is they don't think that the soul enters the body until the first breath. So they think it's essentially just this this vessel that's unoccupied at the moment, right? So that's their spiritual take. And then you have other people that have more of a pragmatic take and they're like all of a sudden circumstances happen and they can't take care of that baby. But I'm like, I, I don't know what states this is legal. And I know North Carolina, there's two weeks. You have two weeks that you can give the baby anywhere to a fire department, um, a police department, a hospital, and they'll take it. No questions asked. Right. So no if you're already, if you're already yeah. that far, I just, I don't understand that. And I don't think I ever will. Cause to me, that's horrifying. But when you break it down to, okay, well, if we all can somehow agree that late term is not okay unless maybe the mom's about to die i don't know i feel like even as a mom i would take that risk um but again you know you don't know until you're in the situation but i feel like that late if the mom's about to die she has the right to make her decision but anything earlier it's like how do we keep bringing this back so where do you establish what is life or what is intelligent life because that seems to be what a lot of people are going after so well and again to be consistent across society um what is intelligent life because Mm -hmm. a person with down syndrome someone would argue that's not intelligent life so does that does that person never have value and so you know i i think when when we talk about morality it's uh, certainly somebody could say no (laughs) i don't think a person with down syndrome who can't work a job or hold a real relationship or participate in society the way a a regular person could um i don't agree with that yeah but at least that would be maybe a consistent that would at least be a consistent line of logic well i should say human life when when do you consider human life right so to be in to be intelligent yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to specify, right? So we, in order to create legislation and let's say – unless, you know, some people are totally anti, right? Like they believe at conception and that's that's their stance. And the way that I look at it, it's like we – and surprisingly, my one of my bigger shifts happened after I listened to that Kanye episode on Joe Rogan. And Mm -hmm. he said some fucking shit on the episode that was just mind-blowing. I'm like, I don't think that guy gets enough credit. But he was saying it, and he's obviously a very religious man and um, pro-life, but the way that he supports choice was we live in this imperfect world and there are less than ideal circumstances. So that choice needs to be there to a point. But rather than... I guess abolishing it all together. Let's cr- start creating a world where women aren't even having to think about doing that, right? Like it could exist. Uh, yeah. And let's somehow figure out how to tackle the problem instead of the symptom. And I was like, whoa, that's 
really wise. That's really wise because mm-hmm. I always thought the way to go at it, at it would be directly to impact the legislation. I'm like, no, you have to get to the hearts and the minds of these people and fix the the issue. Why are they making that decision or why do they feel like they have to make that decision and making their environment safer for them and safer for the child that they should want to bring into the world. Like getting pregnant should be a pleasant experience. So why is it not for these individuals? And then attacking it that way. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think that's a very, I think that's, uh, listen, I think too often we have a tendency to look at an issue and not think what is the greater cause. Like Mm -hmm. a great example would be immigration, right? I don't think enough Americans on either side of the immigration debate look at that and say, why do people want to leave Mexico so badly? And if you watch some really good documentaries, I watched this one that I love called Narco Cultura, which essentially walks you through what it's like to be a a citizen of Mexico in this drug war right now. Um, You know, it it outlines what a horrific experience it is to be a Mexican person, especially a Mexican person with children who's just trying to live a day to day life and and take care of their family in the midst of this insane drug war. And um, you, it, it does give you a little bit of sympathy and empathy towards people that want, that, that are willing to break American laws to try to, you know, give their chance, their children a better chance at survival and happiness and, and, you know, just living at some point. Um, so that's a situation where you look at it and go, man, you know, could the, could the solution to immigration in this country be to legalize drugs, you know? And and so I think, you know, there are some things you can look at and say, if we legalize drugs in this country and basically rendered that problem uh, a financially desperate one for the Mexican drug cartels, or at least one that they did not have to have this sort of fire and brimstone command over their neighbors and people in Mexico to conduct their business, um, you know, could we revolutionize what it means to be a Mexican citizen and essentially extend them some of the same principles of what it is to be American life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, freedom, um, just through the way that we alter our laws to make the functioning world around us better and safer. Um, and then of course I'm, you know, I'm pro legalization of drugs for a lot of other reasons. I I just think again, it's somebody's body, it's their choice and Mm -hmm. they're allowed to put whatever they want into it, you know? And, Like I said, I I am all this is what's so funny about the way this argument was brought up is people go, well, you know, you just had two people that are in sex work on your podcast. Now you want to control a woman's body. And it's like, no, 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 no. I think I I am all about whatever liberation um, anybody wants to pursue in terms of their individual freedoms. You know, I want women to have as much sexual freedom as they desire. And I think we should have. Uh, free birth control, free contraception. I think those are elements of free healthcare that can contribute to a better society. Um, and so I'm all for it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think you should be able to walk into a Walgreens and scoop up some birth control or some plan B or some condoms right there at the counter, like a give a penny, take a penny. <laughs> right. I think, I think if we believe that we should have some responsibility in controlling our population, that is a worthwhile investment. And my goal is I, I think we should be in a position where we're preventing unwanted pregnancy. And so to go back to the Kanye thing that you brought up, there's probably different opinions on how to change that, right? Mm-hmm. And I would argue that changing the law to be more restrictive might be the first step we have to take in creating a world where women are more thoughtful about um, wanting to bring a child into the world or not. It's sort of like chicken and egg, right? Do we have this um, sort of disregarding view on abortion in this country because it's legal? 
And because we've said it's okay for so long, is that why there are so many people like we just talked about who are like, I don't give a shit if it's nine months, it's my choice. It's like, well, that's a totally inhumane approach that I don't think most reasonable people would take. Mm -hmm. But that approach exists, period, because we've lived in a world where it has been legal and in many cases by the mainstream media and the left, it has been applauded. And there are women on Twitter with T-shirts on saying, I've had 21 abortions. I mean, yeah, look, that's ew, crazy. That's, ew. that's not something to brag about because I do – I and this is the interesting thing too. And again, like for me personally, there's no circumstance that I would, I would get one um, – just period. Like uh, that's my choice, right? I, I personally, mm-hmm. for me, would not, wouldn't get one because I do believe that that potential to grow into a human being. I think there's something very special about that, and Absolutely. I wouldn't want to interfere with that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, and I, and I, and I think there's a there's a word you used in there that is very is very special to me when you say potential and uh, and to me one of the, the the way we never have the conversation is who is anyone to decide when another person stops having potential and so the, the and those are often the circumstances of like well I don't have the money to take care of a kid or I'm not ready to take care of a kid by the way those are the two most listed reasons why women get abortions when they are pulled I'm not ready financially I'm not ready socially mm-hmm. and from a, from like a social maturity level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, when we talk about adoption as a great opportunity, it's like that child has potential until it doesn't have the potential to live or the, uh, the opportunity to be alive and to pursue potential. And so um, I think that really, to me, becomes the, the greater moral question is, who is anyone to decide when a life stops having potential? And should we have laws that protect every human's potential? And I, and so that to me is where, again, these are, I'm echoing some of the points that Adam expressed with me on that podcast where I said, wow, man, that really is a, it's a really moving way to talk about it. And I was moved listening to that perspective. And, and I've had some great mentors in my life that are more religious people that I've debated this with them when I was younger and I've come around to their way of thinking. And when you look at, some of the amazing things that people have done in their lives who grew up with it and uh, an abnormal upbringing. They were adopted into a, a different kind of family than they ever would have been in and that for better or worse. And they've, they've achieved and overcome and done these amazing things. Um, God, man, I would really hate for us to be a society that starts steering humanity away from its potential. Mm-hmm. No. And I told, I, that's the, the truth that I realized for myself, I guess where – because my, my husband loves being devil's advocate and he's definitely a little bit more my, – my, my missus as well. Oh, really? There, there's, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a Leo and she is – a not that I'm a uh, – <laughs> I'm a into astrology pers- so you, it's all welcome. Uh, yeah. Not, that's not really something that's my forte. <laughs> but I do – I can acknowledge – or I can't uh, not acknowledge that it is, it is on the money a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But she is an Aquarius – naturally inquisitive and argumentative and i am a leo pride. naturally stubborn stubborn and proud yep and so she will argue hypotheticals with me until i'm ready to put my head through a wall <laughs> and she'll play devil's advocate until the you know till the cows come home i know and i appreciate it so much because there's so many times that he has a perspective i never would have gotten to and he'll stump me and i'm like oh man okay so maybe i do need to 
to sit here and do a thought exercise or maybe investigate why it is that I think that this is the way to go. And I do – and it, it kind of aligns with what's happening with these vaccine uh, mandates too. So it's at what level do you want the government or the state saying you can or can't do this thing, right, to your body? And I was like, oh, yeah, it, it goes into that slippery slope logic, which some people say is a, la- a lazy way to explain things, but it's true. That's how we ended up with states that do full term, right? Slippery slope. It, it gets there with almost, yeah. with almost everything. Um, so that's why I kind of changed my stance on – like for me personally, I won't say anything to anyone in like the first trimester because it takes a long time. It's still early enough and – you do what you feel like you need to do. Again, I personally wouldn't do it, but I'm not going to interfere with your decision to do that and you're going to have to to wrestle with that. Um, and most women that are polled, it doesn't matter how early they, they have it, it, they do describe it as a very traumatic experience and something that they have to um, psychologically deal with. So my argument yeah, the girl to that- wearing the, I've The girl wearing the I've had 21 experience seems to, or, or t-shirt seems to be pretty unfazed by the experience. I would say that it, she just maybe has it buried down, but I would say there's no way that's not affecting you. There's no Or way. she's lying or she's just full right, of Right, or she just wants, yeah, wants and, to- And also being hyperbolic like a comedian would be. Yeah, right? have that so. shock value. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I I agree with you. And and listen, that's why I said I, I you know I don't necessarily know that the Texas mandate or the Texas um, legislation is perfect, Mm-mm. but I do think it's an interesting take to say maybe we just decide that when the heart starts beating that it's a person. And um, but I also don't think that a woman should go to prison if she has some sort of medical anomaly that prevents her from making that decision as early enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it's a girl who's continuously having periods and she's seven weeks or eight weeks or whatever, then, you know, then I think it that's, but those things should be the exception. It's sort of like, you know, I always liken this to speed limits, right? Like a speed limit is a law that is very loosely followed and everyone has their own morality into how much they're allowed to break that law. But we don't remove speed limits based on how many people break that law because We can imagine that our society would be utterly chaotic if we just said, well, most people speed, so let's not have a limit at all. Then the the degree of danger associated with not having any sort of law would become astronomical. Mm -hmm. So I think we kind of have to look at abortion the same way and say we should have some standard. And then obviously there might be circumstances like if somebody is a prisoner in a rape sex cult then I think a lot of the laws we might have in place for the standard operating procedure would go out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, but because there are occasionally people who have the horrendous misfortune of being in that circumstance, we don't just not have a standard. Um, it's like I always say, like we allow somebody to murder another person in self-defense, but because that has to happen sometimes, we never looked at the law and said, well, let's just make murder legal. Because sometimes you got to defend yourself because (laughs) what would that look like, right? That would be insane. And so, and the data supports my stance. Like if, if people have the morality in their heart to never make it a horrifically gruesome decision, then we would never have nine month abortions or eight month abortion, late term abortions. And so maybe the way to steer people away from those kinds of choices is to have some standard to say, Listen, this is when we recognize that it's life 
And anything you do beyond that point is going to be a very dicey decision. Mm -hmm. And and we want people to take precaution. Like I want people to take every precaution to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Mm -hmm. To me, when 95% are, I'm not ready, the, uh, then other precautions should have been taken. And listen, women a lot of time in this argument will say, well, wait, where's men's role? Men should have vasectomies. We should, we should really be pushing that in society. I don't disagree. I do, I do not disagree. I, and I think for men who don't want to be fathers, you have that responsibility. Go take that precaution. Um, but if you're a woman and you think that men should have vasectomies, um, I would expect you not to have sex with any, um, any men that don't. If that's going to be a standard for you and you're going to say, listen, I'm not going to risk the chance of an unwanted pregnancy and I think men should have vasectomies if they don't want to be fathers, great. Don't fuck any that don't have vasectomies. See, I feel and like you'll change that. You'll change that behavior real quick because if guys think, man, if I if I want to sleep with a woman who doesn't want to be a mother, I better go get this thing snipped. Mm. Yeah, I I never understood that that analogy because a forced medical procedure is entirely different than an elective one, especially right. when there are a lot less non-invasive ones. Like obviously birth control, it's pretty shitty for you. Um, I had a lot of health issues while I was on it. And when I got off, I felt amazing. There was a very mm -hmm. night and day difference for me, but there are obviously other measures. And I know a lot of people that are fine on it. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of steps you should take before you have a t-shirt that's saying that you've had 27 abortions. There's a lot of steps <laughs> right. before you get to that point. Do you, yeah, think, I agree. I, I agree. Do with you that. think that, so again, I've, I've seen, I, I'm trying to see both sides as much as I can, especially when things get controversial, because I feel like I, that's the way that I'm just going to decide what my beliefs and stance and opinions and all of that are. I've seen some people say that if you want to stay, stay a red state, you have to pass legislation like a red state. And I was like, OK, that makes sense. And that especially with the influx of people coming in from California. And then I've also heard the argument that by making these laws a lot stricter that they're going to force it to start being blue. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, listen, I when I was a district manager for Hollywood Video, when I was in my early 20s, I was 21, I think. I had South Dakota, I had Sioux Falls in my market. And Sioux Falls had very strict abortion laws. I think all of South Dakota did at that time. This was this would have been like 2005, 2006. And, um, you know, I asked my my employees that worked out there. I was like, well, then what do you guys do? And they go, well, we just we just make sure we don't need to get an abortion. And, and you know, so their reaction was essentially that the law did what it was intended to do, which is just force people through consequence to be more pro, uh, preventative and more proactive. Um, and, and listen, there's a psychology to what makes people do what you want them to do. There are two, there are only two kinds of people. So people are very binary. Let's forget about gender for a second. <laughs> people are incredibly binary when it comes to what drives them. People are either driven by incentives or people are driven by consequences. And our society very much splits into those two categories. There are people who their life choices are determined by the consequences of their choices and, or their life choices are determined by the potential incentives, the potential wins that they would get based on their life choices. And so I think when it comes to abortion, we have shown that most people are consequence motivated in that uh, in the process of making that choice. And so that's why I think the law has to change, because behaviorally, I think we have gotten way far away from being preventative because the option is there. 
And I think people, if there were consequences around the lack of prevention, I think most case, mo in most situations, people will just be more preventative and we won't ever get to the discussion of what to do with a baby at nine months. Like then, then that question becomes obvious, right? We've established some guideline for our moral stance as a country. Mm -hmm. So, um, will that, will states become more blue? Sure. Yeah. I, I listen, I think we'll talk about a little bit wider. We'll zoom out a little <laughs> bit from this topic about the political polarization in our country. I think we're at a critical point, And in the next 10 years, we're either going to go to war amongst ourselves or we're going to divide into two countries. I think those are, I think we're inevitably on that path. I don't think we are in a position where we continue to, and that thread right after my abortion thread got a lot of heat, but zero press where I said, in case you thought we exist in a country where we can coexist with our massive polarization in the way we view the world. Uh, I think the public's reaction to me having an opinion about this at all um, tells you that we don't. We, we don't live in a society where we can coexist. We are too far apart. And one side is going to have to beat the other into submission, or we're going to have to have like a very mutual understanding that there are two sets of types of people in this country with very different values. And perhaps we need to go our separate ways. Conscious you know? uncoupling. A conscious <laughs> uncoupling. Yeah. It's a, mu a mutual termination of the relationship, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. Uh, no, yeah, I, we, I we think, both decided it's time for a breakup. No, I think, oh, man, that'll be fucking crazy. But I do, I would agree with you. I, I do see us splitting into into two countries because it's more polarized than I even thought possible. To where friends are losing friends, families losing family, all over opinions. And I wonder, some so many people say it got to this point because we started talking about politics and we started talking about our our held positions where it used to be, don't ruin the dinner party. We don't talk about mm -hmm. these things. And I would yeah. say we're here because of that. We're here because we never learned how to do it. It was always just stuff it under the rug and let's not, let's just talk about the weather. So we never learned how to have these really important and intellectual and opposing conversations without taking it personally. You're 100% right. And maybe if we would have encouraged more polite debate, mm -hmm. we wouldn't have gotten to this point mm -hmm. where if somebody disagrees with you, they'll go to drastic degrees to misrepresent what your position is or where you stand. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the first time I was canceled in 2018, the tweet that I shared that was so that got everybody up in arms was, you know, I said straight white males become this century's N word. And there's really no difference in how that term is used today than how the N word was used historically. Um, and that's not a direct quote. That's just me sort of paraphrasing the idea. But essentially, my idea was or my statement was like, we should be fighting against racism in all of its iterations, not just white on black or black on white. Like and this idea that it's just OK to be openly racist to white people is not going to move us towards the society we're trying to go for. It's literally now we're just going tit for tat and you guys were mean to me before. So I'm going to be mean to you now. And then there's you're going to continue this this back and forth of oppressor and oppressee, and that is not going to move us forward as a society. We have to decide um, either it's it's an acceptable behavior or it's not an acceptable behavior. We can't just pick and choose when it's okay to be racist and when it's not. And um, and I always think, by the way, when it comes to comedy, I always think it's okay to be racist because it's pretend. We're having fun, mm -hmm. right? And and that's, the, that's kind of where I, I definitely get into trouble is because 
I have this belief that when it comes to comedy, you can make fun of anything. You can talk about anything. And I think a lot of, listen, most of my opinions have been informed over the years by really smart comedians doing really funny bits that might also make really great points. And, um, and I think if we start to say, well, if you want to talk about race, you have to be black. I think that limits the conversation. And then we go back to what you said, where if we're only letting one side share what they think about something, then when someone steps out and has a different opinion, they get obliterated like I just did over the last seven days. When somebody steps out with an opinion that you think diverges from the accepted opinion, and that person gets othered out of existence, Mm -hmm. then you create resentment and animosity, and then you end up with two countries at war with each other. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that in a big way, we kind of put ourselves in this boat by being too polite to discuss our differences for the last 200 years. And now it's bubbled over to the point where it's very hard to discuss our differences without people getting emotional and violent. And I mean, my God, the, the number of death threats. I've, it, and that's oh, what's so funny right. is that the number of death threats I've gotten in the last you know week from women, um, women, men. I've had, you know, over a thousand, over wow. a thousand men and women kill yourself. Uh. I hope your mother should have aborted you. Um, you know, I've been called ugly and disgusting and unfuckable. And, you know, I was like, well, some of that's probably true, <laughs> <laughs> depending on your perspective. Fair point. Um, but, you know, essentially, the, and they're kind of proving my point because they're in their mind, having a different opinion from them makes me inhuman. It makes me complete. It's, it's completely unacceptable. And they have no problem dehumanizing me or telling me my life has no value. Well, those people can go fuck themselves <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to go away. Yeah, that's the quickest pe- that's the quickest way to try to end an argument is to dehumanize the the person on the opposition. And I see that mm. a lot with just existing, right? So people will Look try- what happens with vaccination mm-hmm. right now. Oh yeah. You know, if you don't if you're not pro vaccine, you're a moron, you're you're an idiot. You 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 deserve to die. You don't deserve health care. These are major mainstream talking points. Mhm. that I don't understand. It, it was um I think it was Ilhan Omar that was tweeting yesterday and she was tweeting about she called um what's his name? Governor of Texas. Florida? Texas. Oh, Greg Greg Abbott. Yeah, he was tweeting about the infringement of people's rights because of the mandate. She's like, "Don't pretend that you care about um my about choice over your body." And I was like, "Well, isn't that doesn't that work both ways right now? Like you can't argue that it's any different. It's either you have autonomy or you or you don't to some extent, right?" So, well, yeah, and people leverage that ch- personal choice argument to whatever their beliefs are, right. right? Like there isn't a standard of my body, my choice that is consistent, right? You know, like a little consistency um, would be fucking appreciated right now. It would be so great. It would it would help, be very very helpful. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, everyone is just sort of bending that statement to whatever they think, and it's like. They tell you you need a vaccination and who cares if it's your body because your choice to be vaccinated or not might affect the health of another person. Mm-hmm. And then that person will go so far to also say that uh, it's the my body, my choice applies in the case of abortion because it's only the woman's body who is affected. And it's like, well, no, that's what like 100 percent of successful abortions and then the death of another person mm-hmm. like the numbers are nowhere near that staggering when it comes to vaccination. Like 
your exposure to an unvaccinated person does not 100% lead to your death. <laughs> There's not a study anywhere that's been that bold. And th- this is where we get into the, my view on vaccination, very libertarian view. Uh, I don't think my view on um, on abortion is a libertarian view, but some libertarians, including Dave Smith, um, who a lot of people think is the front runner for the libertarian candidate for president for the next election, um, came out in not so many words supporting my position when the Libertarian Party of Texas said, um, you know, uh, real men don't try to have control over women's bodies. Dave's response was real men protect children. Mm. And so, you know, and and I, I think nobody would argue with Dave's point. The argument often is, well, what, what, are, what are children? When do we decide when someone is a child living thing like you and I talked at mm-hmm. the top? Um but, you know, it's amazing to me the mental gymnastics that people have about that. And the problem I have with forced vaccination is um, there, there's no guarantee that it does have any effect on another person's health. They, if I have a vaccine, they have a vaccine. We can both still give each other COVID. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the number one thing that contributes to what, what effect COVID has on somebody's body are the health choices they've made and how they live their life leading up to infection mm-hmm. more than anyone's vaccination status, more than whether or not anyone is wearing a mask. This is a virus that kind of indiscriminately affects people who haven't been taking care of themselves mm-hmm. in a health way. Mm-hmm. And I am not somebody who's hardly the picture of health, but I didn't have a hard time with COVID in the three times I had it. You've had three um, times? I was three times. Holy cow. Yeah, three times. And the first time is unconfirmed because it was the end of 2019 before we even knew what COVID was. But that was the most sick I was. Ten weeks, no taste, no smell, varying symptoms like death level fatigue of sleeping 18 hours a day, not being able to get out of bed. Um, And we were uh, I was sick for 10 weeks like and I was healthy for maybe two weeks in the middle where I felt a little bit better Mm -hmm. and then went right back in the shitter. Um, I, I tested positive in June of 2020 that time I was sick for maybe a week mm-hmm. and, um, I had, I didn't have any issue with it. I was like, I, I lost sense of taste and smell. That's what caused me to get tested. I felt a little groggy for a week and then I was fine again. Mm-hmm. And then I was sick again in June of 2021, a couple months ago. And it was uh, middling. I was sick for about three to four weeks. Couldn't really kick the habit or kick the, <laughs> kick the symptoms, not the habit. I'm not addicted to having COVID, but, um, <laughs> And that, but then I, I've been dealing with for the last eight weeks. Um, I, I had this like undeterred, I couldn't figure out why I was itchy all the time and found out I have celiac disease now. So I don't know if that was a, a pre-existing condition that was exasper- uh, exacerbated by COVID, uh, COVID, Jesus, my tongue is all over the place this morning, or if it's just coincidental and I'm at that stage in life where my body is no longer processing um, gluten because that can happen in rare instances as well. So it could be coincidental. But it might not be. No, and so I think knowing it's, that, it's usually yeah. those things are usually brought on by some kind of trauma or intense moment to your immune system. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and that's probably um, I, I, there, there. Probably is some correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I'll tell you this: in a way, it's it's also a blessing too because I would have never addressed an intolerance to gluten if it didn't get to this point. And I, and looking back on some of the other things that I experienced, like part of the reason I don't drink is because my body has always had a vicious reaction to alcohol. Mm. And I always thought it was the alcohol. And now I'm starting to think it was the the gluten yeah. that was in beers or, or, you know, some hard liquors. And, and so I'm like, man, uh, you know, I, I've, I've joked with my friends. I've lost like 11 pounds in the last 10 days 
from being off gluten. Um, and it's hard to be off gluten if you go out and you eat at restaurants and stuff because there's always this cross contamination. And you know, you might think, well, I'm not eating gluten, and then you get. Are you that sensitive? Where like, yeah, can you have I, like I'm, fried food, like fries, or no? no? Okay. I can have fries, but if like perfect example, if French fries are fried in the same fryer yeah. as like chicken tenders, right. I'll have a reaction. Holy cow. My ear, I'll get itchy behind my ears mm-hmm. and all my neck will start to break out. Yeah. Oh. So it's like a full blown. I mean, I remember when I first realized that it was that I had ordered pizza and that's what made me realize um, that I had it. And I was like, Oh God. And I'd eaten half of that pizza and saved the other half for like morning. And I was like, maybe I can take an allergy pill and just finish the pizza. Like, <laughs> at least this will be my, this will be my, my go, my, my hurrah pizza. And I ate it the next day. And I mean, instantly my hands swollen to where I couldn't make a fist, my feet swollen, my face just flush and oh. broke out. And, um, and yeah, anytime I've bent and tried to sneak a little, I had like two pieces of garlic bread with gluten-free pasta, a couple, probably like over a week ago now, maybe like 10 days ago. And it was the same thing, mm. this complete breakout reaction. Two pieces of frozen garlic bread was like, sent me into an allergy spiral. So, um, you know, it's, and, and listen, I, I probably, I definitely didn't help that situation with my diet or anything over the last, you know, 10 years for sure. So, um, like I said, that, that could have been exacerbated by COVID. It might have nothing to do with COVID, but, Mm -hmm. um, inevitably, you know, most of what causes people's uh, reaction to COVID is their pre-existing health conditions. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so forcing vaccination, I mean, you're now you're forcing something. It's sort of like the idea of, um, you know, imagine being forced to vaccine so you don't get someone sick who does heroin every day. You know, it's like that that to me seems like their choices are having a far greater impact on their health than my choices. And so that's where I feel like that thing gets very dicey to say you have to get vaccinated because of the health of other people. The, the science really doesn't uh, prove that that helps in any circumstance. No, I was going to say, I haven't seen any information that even hints that someone on the outside's vaccination status affects you. It's hope the, the whole point is hopefully if you're vaccinated, that if you do catch COVID, because now we do know it doesn't prevent you from catching it or spreading that. But if you do catch it, that you have an easier go with it. And that simply is what it is. So if that's the case, then I don't understand I don't understand why it's an argument or why it's controversial or why we're even discussing a mandate because I haven't seen a professional come out and say that it, it impacts anyone. Isn't it um, – what shots are they? Like the MMR shots, so like the measles, mumps, and rubella, like those are the shots that other people's vaccination status does directly affect you. Do you know? Um, yeah, yes, because what happens in the instance with those, and listen, I'm not a, let me preface right. this. I'm Comedian not a and a porn star talking. So get your medical yeah. advice somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're if, listen, if you're, if we're talking. wrong and you're mad, you're stupid for expecting us to be right. <laughs> um, but I, from what I understand, the difference between an mRNA vaccine and a traditional vaccination like a measles, mumps, rubella vaccine is that that vaccine, the MMR, teaches your body how to kill that virus. And so um, inevitably, you're, you're basically training your immune system how to eliminate that virus. 
But an mRNA vaccine doesn't do that. It just reinforces your immune system to deal with that Mm. virus. And so in the case of of, uh, measles, mumps, and rubella, the logical conclusion to draw from that would be, yes, the likelihood of that person um, making their immune system programmed to be able to kill that virus absolutely prevents you from getting it or from them from transmitting it because it exterminates the virus in their immune system. Whereas an mRNA COVID vaccine does not do that. Mm -hmm. It teaches you how to fight it, but it doesn't kill it. And so there really is no um, prevention from you spreading the virus. Um, And some would argue there are some papers that have come out that have said that perhaps the rampant um, mutations are related to the... uh, incredibly fast vaccination rollout yeah, I've seen and that. the fact that we vaccinated these people so, so fast and in such great volume that it has forced the, the virus to mutate at a, at a, an insane pace. And, and, and now we're trying to play catch up. It's like, we're, we're playing chess and the virus is changing faster than we can change the inoculations. And, and now we're at war with this virus. And arguably we might've killed it already if we had just gone the route of naturalized immunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when it comes down to these decisions that are being made and the stark difference of perspective, you have to ask yourself what your principles are and what's what's um, what you're not going to waver on. Like, what is something that that's the hill that you're going to die on? And I think that it's important that individually we establish those and then stand that ground, right? It's not about – because I know a lot of people that are vaccinated that are anti-mandate. And for some reason, anyone that's anti-mandate, everyone automatically thinks that you're a Looney Tune and anti-vax entirely and anti-science and just wearing a tinfoil hat. That's not the case. I know plenty – like Bridget Fettesi is a great example, and she's been very vocal about this since she got her vaccine. She was like, it's none of your fucking business. I'm vaccinated, but we should all have a problem with this mandate. And it's that thought exercise of if you think something is pure or well-intended, then you have to hand it over to the opposition. And unless you're comfortable doing that, it's probably a terrible fucking idea. So all these people that are like pro-mandate because, you know, Uncle Joe was in office, well, what happens, let's say, and Michael Malice, was, and again, it's like satire, but Michael Malice had a tweet that was saying, okay, if the orange man goes back in office and tells you all to inject bleach into your arm because that's what the media said he wanted to do, well, now he can do it. And it's like, this is where yeah. this fucking goes. This is where this It's a this slippery goes. slope. It's a very slippery slope. And, you know, regardless of where you stand, like Joe Biden's ma- vaccine mandate yesterday is the most totalitarian move of an American leader has ever exerted in the history of America. I mean, you know, and this is hyperbolic, which is my specialty, obviously, (laughs) but it's like the idea that uh, something like that was passed and there weren't people charging the Capitol yesterday, they should be, um, you know, praying to God. Thank you, because this is the most egregious reach of power that a leader has ever pursued. I mean, this is real fascism. Do it because I fucking say so Mm -hmm. or else. Yeah. I mean, that is like fire and brimstone consequence government at its finest. And so, you know, um, and and now what we have in this country, it seems, is a partisan reach for fascism, you know. And so 
Um, I can't argue with people that think it is more fascist for Texas to stand out and say, we're going to make this determination um, and we're going to we're going to remove rights that the Constitution grants you. And so, you know, I, I, I definitely am for states rights. Um, and, and a lot of people are concerned, like, well, this is the first shot across the bow to overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, but you can't call that fascism and then turn your eye the other way. And when Joe says vaccines or else and vice versa, you can't hate the vaccines and, and then not at least give the concession that the Texas uh, heartbeat bill is is changing someone's rights. It's absolutely changing uh, a freedom that they had previously. And so um, I, I happen to think one is for the greater good and I think the other one is unnecessary. Um, that's just my opinion. But um, I think part of the problem is, is that people prevent nuance from creeping in. It's interesting. You said earlier, like, oh, well, do I want this to be the hill I die on? And that's and that's part of the reason why we can't even have discussions with each other is because everyone thinks having an opinion is a hill to die on now. And it's like, no, no, I'm not. Di- I don't have to die on any hill. <laughs> we can discuss our differences of opinion and we don't have to be killing each other on these hills every day. <laughs> no. And I, I think it's more about being mindful of that hill, right? Like a hill the way that I look at ideas, I feel like ideas should be worn and probably frequently changed or frequently evaluated at least, right? When I'm talking about principles and dying on those hills, I think if you really take the time to craft what is important to you and to your family, I would say that it's not a principle if you're not willing to die on that hill, right? So freedom, for example, something that I've seen a lot with the younger generation and just a lot of people on the left specifically, which is like, okay, but it's just your freedom. It's making really light of this very heavy, important thing. And it's saying almost that you're selfish for feeling that you are entitled to that that concept. But it's like, hold on a second. That's what this country was founded on. And I feel I feel even from like a spiritual place, how that's not something that we see the pure value in and can't waver. Like it's like when in history have we given some of that to an, a government entity and said, okay, well, I want it back now and they actually received it back. It's like every take yeah. remains gone forever. So – to pew pew and freedom of information it. act right, exactly. or not freedom of information act but the um, yeah with the, the uh w- the 911 what is that patriot what am i act. thinking of patriot act yeah. yes 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 freedom of information i'm i'm all over the board but yeah yeah the patriot act we've never gotten those privacies back no and they just admitted they're like we're still using it and like hold on yeah. a second yeah so ne- never in the history of uh, our society in america and the american project have we ever um given up a freedom and then been handed it back. Well, I guess where did we lose the appreciation for freedom? When did we think it's just some something we're supposed to celebrate once a year and barbecue and that's all that that means to you and that it's not that people have paid the ultimate price for you to act like a fool online and have these opposing opinions and realize this is worth this is worth your blood or it should be. Well, we have we have about twenty years where, with the exception of the post nine eleven um, skirmishes, we've haven't gone to we really haven't gone to war war since Vietnam. Um, so we have essentially an entire generation that has never had to fight to protect our freedom. So they take it for granted, you know. And then you've seen the Joe Rogan clip, I'm sure, of like, uh, you know, hard times make hard men, mm-hmm. hard men make soft times, soft times make soft men. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, I think we're definitely in a cycle of soft times have made soft men. We're soft as a society. We haven't had to fight for our freedom. So we take them for granted. And, um, you know, here we are. And, 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 uh, Carlin said it best where he said, we're always willing to trade our freedoms for the illusion of safety, the illusion of security. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is the hill that America will die on. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because that's that's very hard for me to relate to because I'm quite the opposite. I there was that meme that was going around, and because it was alluding to that right the the trade of freedom for safety, and it has this tiger that's in a cage at the zoo, and it's it's all of its meals are predictive, all of its health care is taken care of, doesn't have to worry about a goddamn thing. It just exists in this cage. And then the other side is nothing is guaranteed, but what a life that is. And which one do you think is happier and more free? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But, and I think, I, and it does not surprise me that that is your perspective because, and I don't want to ascertain or just determine what made you get into your line of work in the adult industry when you were younger. But the decision to do that is sort of a radical individualist approach to your life, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're sort of saying, I'm going to do this thing that empowers me and gives me ultimate freedom um, to have as a career, regardless of the outside opinion. I mean, let's face it. It, it couldn't have been a popular choice for you to make. No. You, and you definitely didn't do it because you were going to be more beloved by everyone <laughs> that knew you for making that choice. It's a hard choice. Yeah. So for you to be wired, and this is what people don't understand. They're like, whores, you hate sex work. <laughs> I go, no, I, I love sex workers because in a way, people that are in the adult business or that work in sex are very similar to comedians in that we're both willing to sacrifice public acceptance for our radical individualism yes. in our lives. And that is a that is an, a kinship that we share that other people who have never done something like that will ever understand. And, um, you know, I, I do think that that is a big part of like, wh why do people let's get to the core of why people hate what I do. They hate that I feel free enough to do it because and even people that agree with me in some degree resent the freedom to express it because they go well, I could never say it I'd lose my job mm -hmm. I could never say it my my family would disown me my church would disown me um and so you know there's a lot of I I am it's easy for me to kind of shrug aside the hate because I know that it, ultimately they don't hate the idea they hate the freedom that I express mm -hmm. in 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 uh, espousing the idea mm -hmm. and they hate that I feel liberated and open enough to do it, knowing it's unpopular, knowing there will be blowback and not giving a fuck because there's nothing anyone can take away from me mm -hmm. by sharing those thoughts. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think that makes people dangerous in the eyes of those who choose to conform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost anyone that is fully realizing themselves or fully expressing themselves without regard of consequence, it almost threatens everyone else's way of being. And and to your point, it's saying, I can't do that, so he shouldn't be able to do that. And it's like, no, you totally can. And I think the one of the one of the beautiful things that came out of COVID and the pandemic is I think it radically shifted the way that people looked at their lives, their day-to-day -day lives, what they were investing their time in, who they were working for, what does their fucking life mean, 
right? They were reconnecting with family that maybe they didn't even know and they were living in the same household. So it showed and it made people scrappy. Like people were getting gig jobs, side hustles, starting e-commerce, right? And then they started to actually be their own boss, start their own brand and be beholden to nobody. And I think if more people fucking lean into that, it's terrifying, especially if you have a family and, you know, you have all these responsibilities, but there's so much more freedom on the other side. So it's not being scared to take that jump, right? Absolutely. And so in that in that analogy, I'll hearken back to that you made earlier, you and I are lions that are living in in the free range. Mm -hmm. And we're we're deeply resented by lions who have chosen the cage. And and they're they'll they'll argue that my freedom is not worth sacrificing all the luxuries Mm -hmm. that they have by sacrificing their freedom. Mm -hmm. And my point is, I would rather starve running free then live a life of luxury and bondage. Mm-hmm. And the, and those are two ideological differences. And I, I would be lying if I said I don't judge those that make that choice because I, I heavily do. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a fucking weak way to be as a person. And I think that's why we have a president forcing mandates down our throat is because too many people will take the blue pill. They'll take the ignorance. They'll take the life of, you know, they're all cipher in the matrix, right? Uh, You know, I know that the matrix is telling me that the steak is delicious and juicy and all that. And I know that none of it is real, but boy is ignorance bliss. Mm. And, you know, uh, that I would rather, again, starve in Zion, a free man, free will, free to make my own choices than to uh, live a life that is fake and that is padded. And uh, I, I don't believe trading my luxury for comfort or my my uh, freedom for luxury and comfort is a fair trade. I, I'd rather be free. Mm-hmm. So when what I think was so curious, too, um, was when all of this started happening, like your second cancellation, if you will. And this is like the fourth, the fourth one, fourth but this one. is the second, the <laughs> second big one. The second. Yeah, the second one at scale is that Food Network felt the need to put out a comment. And I was like, well, what's that about? Because diversity of thought, I think, is a great thing. It keeps everybody sharp and it makes sure that we don't go into anything that's too totalitarian on either side, right? You need to have that that swing and that balance. Um, again, they knew who you were when they brought you on. You were a comedian and you had already gone through some stuff. So I thought, well, what's that about, right? Like you should be – Maybe. Well, I thought I thought it was an interesting choice for them because, you know, um, like I mentioned at the top, there was uh, when when the straight white male tweet happened, Mm -hmm. most of people's intellectual argument was, well, you're just racist. And even though that's a misrepresentation of me, um, that's an opinion that I don't think anybody would disagree is okay to stand against. Right. Like if you really believe I'm racist then you should stand against that because I think we all agree racism, there's no excuse for it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, My argument is that like art isn't an opinion. Um, You know, know, it's it's not more racist to make a a joke about race than it is for Quentin Tarantino to make the movie Django Unchained. Like he doesn't make that movie because he hates black people and loves slavery. He's telling a story. Mm -hmm. And and any instance where I've chosen to use offensive language, the N-word or anything else, I'm often telling a story. And I'm often telling a story about my experiences with racism, being a guy who has dated women who are black, who's uh, been with women who are Middle Eastern, and 
talking about the experience of having this face and having racist people just look at me and assume we're on the same team <laughs> and then start to like, yeah, man, you know what I'm talking about? I'm just So a lot of times I'm sharing my experiences of what it's like to be a white guy that people dump their racism onto. And, and I try to deal with that in a funny way. That's the way I've dealt with it my whole mm -hmm. life. When my mom left my dad when I was younger, one of her first boyfriends, uh, significant for a while, was a black guy. And this is 1990. 93 92 93 so this was still very taboo uh, and i remember walking through the mall with my mom and her boyfriend james and his little baby uh jimmy who was like one or two who was mixed race and so people assumed he was my mother's child and he wasn't he was james's child from his previous relationship but I remember the hate coming from every direction. White people hated it. Black people Oof. hated it. I remember people openly saying in earshot without any attempt to censor themselves um, the most racist, hateful things, both black and white people. And I and I so that ingrained in me at a very early age that like both sides hate um, both both groups have the potential to hate mm -hmm. um, when people come together. And that is about fear and that is about survival. Um, and so my way of dealing with it then was about humor. Even as a young kid, 10, 11 years old, I would make jokes about it um, and I would make them laugh and it would ease the, the pain and the tension of that. And so that's my lens has always been sort of tilted that way where I look at race and I go, what's funny about this? This interaction between two people that's, that could be very hurtful and harmful. How do I make it funny? And, um, and so that's always been sort of my approach as an artist about those things. Um, but again, even if I was being misrepresented, that would have been the time in my mind for food network to come out and go, we espouse these views, right? Racism's never okay. Mm -hmm. Cause at least that's an, that's a, a defendable position. Mm -hmm. They chose this circumstance, which is arguably the most like divisive topic in America today. Right. Um, and you took a very hard line stance to say that we not only do you not agree with my review, my views, but you regret having ever given me a platform. I mean, they basically just flipped the bird yeah. to every conservative viewer that agrees with me. Mm -hmm. And they got eviscerated. If you go and look at their thread, they got eviscerated in their comments. Yeah, I didn't see it. Yeah, the pro-life crowd was like, fuck this network. I'm canceling and I will never support you again. Like, you've lost me as a viewer. Mm -hmm. And so... I can tell you why they did it. Probably. I can speculate. Uh, they did it because most of the executives at Food Network are women. Uh, most of the people that work in PR, that work in development, that, that were involved in my hiring process are women. And listen, I'm being honest. Those women never had a problem with any of the racial material I did when they signed me to a five-year contract. Um, they, their perspective was he's a comedian. You make jokes. We're not in the business of comedy. If we start trying to be the arbiters of what is and isn't funny, we're just going to create problems mm -hmm. for ourselves. These are real conversations I had with these executives. This, 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 this topic is far more personal for women. It's far more emotional for them. And I think they, in their mind, they thought that this was the safer hill to die on because they're thinking th of it through the perspective of women who think like they think. And I, you know, I think it was a misstep on their part. I mean, listen, they just like I have to deal with the consequences of the choice to share my opinions. So do they uh, as a corporation. And, you know, I, I'll share this. Um, I, I talk about the death threats. 
the thing that a lot of people don't talk about in these circumstances is the overwhelming number of people that have messaged me support and have said, uh, you are my new favorite comedian. You're the only comedian I've seen in 20 years stand for something that isn't popular. Um, you know, thank you for standing up for, I've had women who, uh, went to get an abortion, almost died, committed their entire life to being anti-abortion and they're anti-abortion activists because women don't know uh, the health risks associated with abortion. Here's a great example. How many women die getting the procedure every year, Candace? I have no know? idea. No, I know that. I have no idea either. Yeah. I had no idea either because no one ever discusses that, but apparently it's more than none. So it's like she, you know, this, this amazing woman, reached out to me in the messages that said, like, I, you know, I, I believed all the pro-choice women empowerment shit ever. And, ever, and I almost died getting an abortion. Um, and it changed my life. And I've dedicated my life to trying to educate women that this, this, the society is telling you that this is fine and it's safe and it's not fine and it's not safe. These places are not clean. They're not re really well uh, regulated. It, it's like they tell you the best. We have these Planned Parenthoods to avoid you getting a back alley abortion, and a lot of these places are run like back alley abortion clinics. And hmm. so, um, so many people reaching out with like loving messages of support. The the shift. There's been a drastic shift um, in my in like my social media fans. Um, I've lost about four or five thousand uh, people who don't like my opinion. I've gained about thirteen thousand that support the opinion, and so. You know, and, and some people go, oh, well, you're just grifting like you just took on this position because you think it's going to endear you to a new audience. No, this is how I really feel. Mm -hmm. And I also am somebody who if you are someone who thinks that disagreeing with someone means they no longer deserve your respect or your friendship or your kindness. Fuck you. I don't want you as a fan. You don't get me. You don't get my process. Like I said on Instagram in my long sort of diatribe of explaining where I'm coming from, you don't have to agree with me for us to be friends. Mm -hmm. Um, you have to respect the process of, of people uh, exploring what their thoughts and opinions are, and you have to be supportive of that. And if you're so close minded on either side that you're unwilling to listen to someone who doesn't agree with you, then baby, I'm not for you. Right. <laughs> that is my whole thing. Like my thing is just, you know, I, I love exploration. I love looking at things from a different perspective. And my views will surely continue to change based on my life experiences and the conversations I have with people that come from different places as I do that have different life experiences. I mean, that's what that's what turns me on as a comedian. That's where I write my best shit mm -hmm. is by being exposed to new things. Mm -hmm. And I think there, there, there's a reason there's a lot of shitty comedy in the world today is because people become so entrenched in their beliefs that they don't experience anything outside of that bubble then they can only write inside that bubble. And they have a very one dimensional act that only sort of looks at things from one point of view. And the only people that can like them are people that agree with them. And the second you deviate from that, you lose your entire fan base. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You almost become, who is I? I was talking to Zuby actually. And we were talking about my, I was about my shift and, he was just kind of giving me some advice on how to manage my platforms. And he said one of the things that he did from the beginning that was super helpful is he never put himself in a bucket. Like he was like – he decided he was going to be a rapper and also an intellectual. He was going to talk a little bit about politics. He got into fitness. He just like – he – 
plugged away at whatever his interests were and his opinions were without considering, well, I wonder if no one's going to like that because he was just remaining authentic to himself. So he trained mm-hmm. his base to ex- to kind of expect and accept all of those versions of him. And where my yeah. learning curve is, is for a long time, I trained my base to only expect sexuality. So when I tried to throw yeah. anything else, they were like, hold on, this isn't what I'm used to. That's not what I'm trained to do. I don't know what to do with this. So um, I think remaining authentic and not being scared of how people are going to interpret it is going to serve you so much better in the long run than just playing to your base. Do you know what I mean? Can I tell you something honestly? So I'm going to share a real conversation I had with someone about meeting you and talking with you on the podcast and some of the other women I've gotten to meet and talk to in the adult world is I have said that um, the ability to peek behind the curtain for women that work in the sex industry has literally reshaped what I find attractive uh, in women and what turns me on in women because um, it, there's a tremendous amount of, of um, uh, stimulus in your brain when somebody that you find physically attractive has this other element of intellectualism or or spirituality or introspection, these other things. And um, I, I don't know what they call it, sapiosexual, right? Somebody who is literally turned on by somebody else's in- intellect. Um, but it's, it's amazing to me um, that I believe that by women who come out of your industry and start to diversify what the public sees of you, your personality, your beliefs, your family, all these other things. I think it will make us less cold in how we view each other intimately. Mm. I think it will make us more. And and Chrissy Mayer had a great line on the podcast that I did with her right in the middle of the cancellation last week, where she said, I think if women were asked earlier, like, what do you want out of a man? And, and really, if they had to think about like, is this somebody you would ever really consider as a partner um, long-term um, she goes, I think we would just start fucking better men earlier in our lives and we stop wasting our time with all these fuck boys. Mm. And she took a lot of heat on Twitter for espousing that view. Um, but it's like, you know, I really think like it's so it's so to espouse and it's like, I don't think I can even uh, like even for in this, I'm not sure I'd be gross, but like even from like a masturbatory perspective. I don't think I can even just look at someone objectively anymore and go, I'm turned on by this person just because of how they look. I have to know, what is she like? What's her personality like? What does she think? What are her values? It's fucking weird, <laughs> but it's like this shift in the adult industry of of women becoming more open and available has almost made you value who they are as people more. And so it's almost for me taken an objectification out of the sex world uh, in terms of like sex work and porn and everything else. And so I don't know, I guess in a weird way, I feel like there's something kind of beautiful about that of like, you know, this idea that like now I literally can't be turned on by a woman unless I know what her mind is like. Oh, that's a refreshing take because I have so many comments that are like, shut up and get naked. Shut up and (laughs) shut up and open that asshole. Right. Like, (laughs) so it's like, um, you know, yeah, it's, but it is, but so yeah, I I say that because I know you get those kind of Mm -hmm. comments. I see them in your social media where there's like, ain't nobody care about your opinion, (laughs) bitch. Just show them titties. Like, uh, and they, by the way, they, say the same thing to me nobody cares about my opinions just show them titties and make us laugh right but it but i want you to know that i do think there are men on the other side of that that are like oh no now i can't 
Like it's gotten to the point where if I look at a woman that I think is physically attractive and she opens her mouth and is stupid or gross, I'm like, I can't even, I can't even be attracted to that now because Mm -hmm. it's, she's just an unattractive person. And God forbid technology has allowed us to uh, take the objectification out of sex work more. Like it's, it's just, it has, and maybe I'm getting older. Maybe that's part of being, 38 now having been in a nine-year relationship but it's like the the most attractive thing in my partner is who she is as a person like what makes her laugh what makes her brain tick um some of her naivete and dealing with the real world because her life experiences are different than mine her she's traveled the world she's got these tremendous um cultural experiences that I've never experienced, right? I've been all over the United States. I've seldom ever left the country. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Canada, but I've never been anywhere abroad. And so, um, you know, being with someone like that for that many years and and being in a monogamous relationship, I think kind of shifts gears for you that way, Mm -hmm. where you, you need more out of the people in your life, um, to, to, to want to want to rock with them. But it, it, it has, even in something as transactional as like what you like, um, sexually like uh, the the whole sphere of someone's personality i think now comes into it because there have been so many women in the sex work world who have been brave enough to go like here's what i really think and here's who i really am and this is what i really stand for and i do think you'll probably lose some fans because they're like i don't i don't like that um or i don't agree with it but i think you'll gain so many more who are like oh my god i love everything about this person now and i think those people will become far more uh, ravenous in their fandom to more than compensate for the people who are like, I don't want to know what you think. I don't want to know about, I don't want to see pictures of you with your family or on vacation or Mm -hmm. any of this. Like they want to remove the humanity from the interaction. And for me, the humanity enhances um, what you think of other people. Like I, and it's weird, man, maybe I'm, maybe I'm hitting my midlife crisis or whatever, (laughs) but like these people will message me these nice supportive things and I go in and I look at them and they have pictures of their family and their kids and everything else. And you're just like, God, these people are so fucking happy. You know what I mean? Like all my friends that are met or not friends. Uh, let me say this. All my colleagues in comedy that are messaging me, messaging me going, you threw your whole career away. You, I hope you're happy. Like you've killed your entire career. And I, I, you go to their Instagram and they're fucking miserable. There's no joy in their lives. And I look at the Instagrams of the people, um, that support me and and they have so much love and so much joy in their lives. And it's like, I'd rather do shows at coffee shops with 30 of those people than arenas filled with 20,000 people that fucking hate their existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I saw your tweet too, that you were saying for all those people that are saying, I just destroyed my career. I'm just getting started. And I started laughing and I think it's the same I think it's happening in a lot of industries, but specifically ones that kind of live on the outskirts of what's deemed acceptable. So I would say comedy and sex work are are on the fringes. I think when you see so many opportunities to be self-sufficient and have your own platform and not be beholden to these companies that have kind of ruled the universe since existence, there's going to be a shift and there's so much more power there. And I think so many people are trained to still kind of cower underneath what's acceptable and not realizing the door's wide open. And then you can just run through and still be wildly successful. You don't need to have a deal with a food network. I don't have to have a contract 
with an adult company, right? You can create your own success and then you kind of get to forge your own path. And then it's you get to voice your opinions and I get to voice my opinions and I don't have to worry if I say um, that my opinion on X is this, it goes in this one bucket, all of a sudden I'm on this no shoot list, right? That's a mm-hmm. terrible place to constantly be living. There's always anxiety if you're going to get hired or if your colleagues want to work with you or who's going to go on, on the road with you, yada, yada. Um, I think that that it might be a little bit bumpier in the beginning, but there's so much more to be had at the end of that road if you decide to like move forward with it. Um, so I don't, I don't see someone like you being able to be canceled. I think it's so funny that everyone's losing their mind because it's like, okay, you had this show on Food Network, great, but there's a lot more opportunity. There's a lot more places that you can grow and be successful. Well, and the thing that's so funny to me is like the show on Food Network aided in my shift to have more conservative perspective because like we traveled the country. I met all these amazing people and entrepreneurs and chefs Mm -hmm. and restaurant industry people who all for the most part had very conservative political leanings. And and I look at the lives that these people created for themselves and again, their radical individualism, their bravery, their independence, their fucking tenacity to chase their dreams and to to make something of themselves. It's inspiring. Like I would go to these restaurants and meet these people and be fucking like I would walk away and feel like a piece of shit. (laughs) I would be like. I would be like, listen, I might have a show on television, but that guy's a fucking rock star like that dude or that woman, um, you know, and, and by the way, so many awesome women entrepreneurs that we met in the in the the, the run of the show um, Two that really stick out to me were the two women that own truffles and bacon cafe in uh, Henderson, Nevada, outside of Vegas. It's just fucking tremendous entrepreneurs who love what they do. like. That's really what it is, is I think doing. I met a lot of comedians in my time, very famous ones, too, that you can tell really don't love what they do. And we see this in the NFL all the time. You'll see guys that are first round draft picks that are out of the league a year later. And if you the team does press and they go, yeah, man, he just didn't really love football. And so he didn't make it as an NFL player. There are a lot of comedians that are uh, that are um, successful that don't love comedy and that don't love people and, and experiences and, and life and telling stories. Um, there was very few people I met traveling, doing ginormous food that didn't love, love what they do. I mean, I would walk into these kitchens and they'd be like, they would have like a Thanksgiving. They go, this is everything I do. Taste it all. <laughs> Experience it all. Like, and yeah, obviously we all got enormously fat doing the show, but just these 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 rock star people who were in love with their occupation. And so, you know, by nature of like being around those people and listening to their stories and what my biggest regret about ginormous food is that we didn't tell their stories enough. It was like food porn, for lack of a better word, was the show. And one of the points of contention in the show leading up to them not picking up my contract was I did. I wanted more um, creative control over the show. I wanted more money, which comes along with that. But I wanted the creative control to say um, some of these people have tremendous stories. And I think sometimes we need to break format to tell their story. Like I this segment shouldn't be about the 20 pound burger they made because we asked them to should be about this this person surviving cancer and is and before crowdsourcing his entire community donating money to keep his restaurant afloat while he was getting chemotherapy and couldn't run his restaurant. Like that's a fucking story. Mm -hmm. That's something I would want to watch. And, and also I'm a talented enough guy to, to, to interview someone and, and get that story out of them 
and then go into the kitchen and make a fucking ass out of myself as well. Like, give me the freedom to do that and, and give us the creative license to know this is a moving story and this is what needs to be told. Mm -hmm. And they did. They were so format focused. They were like, nope, your show is about being a silly, fat titted bitch. And you are, we're not going to entrust you to tell these people stories. We're not going to let you and, and we're not going to let them tell them. And, you know, that was a very creative, um, you know, that was a very big creative difference that we had um, going into the, again, one of the many factors in them not choosing to renew my contract was I really wanted to make a different show. And I shared a post, people can go back on Facebook when they moved the show from food network to travel my producer at my production company told me like, we might be able to start doing more of that. So I was excited because I, so I went on social media and said, I know this, this looks like a demotion going from food network to travel channel, but I feel like we might actually start to make the show I really want to make. And the fucking network lost their mind that I shared. Yeah. That. You're not allowed. To they do were that. like, how dare you? How dare you say that you, you want the show to be different? And I go, I'm being honest. Like I'm be, I've shared these thoughts with you guys. I'm sharing them with my fans and, um, you know, and, and some of my really close fans and friends would watch the show and they're like, yeah, it's cool to see you on TV, but like, you're so much more than that character that they have you playing. Like you're not some goofy barbecue dad. You're like a really smart, introspective, clever guy. And there's, there's more you could be doing with that show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talked to many other people in food in the Food Network world, like Duff Goldman and uh, and Duff told me, he goes, uh, and Bobby Flay said the same thing. He goes, everybody gets into this business wanting to be the next Anthony Bourdain. And the reality is, is we're all very lucky if we can just be the next Guy Fieri. <laughs> and I said, I said, man, that sucks to hear. like, that's just a dream crusher, right? Um, Why do you because think you're that just is? Like, like, obviously comfort. It's the cage. Okay. It's the cage. It's they just go, well, I'd rather I'd rather have a show than not have a show at all. So I'll take the shitty pay and I'll do it however they demand I do it. And I'll wear the clothes they give me and I'll let them change my hair and I'll I'll be a person that I'm not. And it turns into acting. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's uh, and listen, those kinds of things happen in every industry and in every profession like you know at, at everybody's job they're always trading a little bit of freedom for more comfort and, and more ease and and more likability and i one of the reasons why i am this way as a person is that i've never been liked even when i do all of the right things the quote unquote right things I'm a guy who always there's always a chunk of people that will just never fucking like me because maybe it's my red hair. <laughs> maybe it's my face. Maybe it's the way I talk. And so I grew up my entire life going, there's no amount of bending to other people's will that will make me beloved by everyone. So if I'm going to go through my entire life being hated by a good chunk of people, no matter what I do, I might as well be myself. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very wise. A lot of people would still try to make everybody happy, but I was talking to somebody and it was the very early stages of the podcast and I was really scared to get into anything real because I knew no matter what, there's going to be an opposition. And he was like, Candace, if you're, if people don't hate you, then no one's loving you. They, you yeah, know, they both good, grow at the same point. time. It's a good point. And yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I think it takes a lot of guts to to step out from what you're used to mm -hmm. and express yourself in a new way. Mm -hmm. um, 
but uh i you know the for the people that do take that risk man those are the people that i like to fuck with like those <laughs> are the people that excite me and that i i like to talk to and interact with and get to know better because i think you know there's uh like i said on twitter like if you're a comedian who's never said something offensive or or controversial and you've never had to stand behind it i just don't have any respect for you and i don't care how much money you've made by being someone you're not that that's not appealing to me Mm -hmm. like you you could show me kevin hart great example like tons of money and a big part of that is like not being too opinionated right and and the few times he has been opinionated he's gotten himself in a lot of trouble and he's had to come out and apologize and go on these massive apology tours and Mm -hmm. everything else and it's like i don't know if that's worth it and part of the reason i don't have to worry about making that trade-off is because i don't have a family to support i don't have kids like i have a partner but um you know I don't have responsibilities that make me have to consider the the benefits of sort of selling out versus being myself. So I've sort of insulated myself from needing to make those kinds of decisions. And um, I'm unafraid of dealing with the lack of popularity by being controversial or, or not being, you know, not saying the safe thing. And, you know, when did you ever re- name me a comedian that you, we talked about this with like Tim Dillon versus Jim Gaffigan, yeah. right? Like, You'll you might have fun at both, but the, the Tim Dillon show is going to leave a much bigger impression on you because he takes risks. And I think in comedy, particularly, uh, the guys who take risks are always more memorable than the the guys and gals who don't. No, I agree one hundred percent. And it, I, I think Tim Dillon ruined me because <laughs> I can't go. To, oh I, I can't go to other comedy if it's not at the same level. I'm like, it just doesn't give me the same juice that I need. You should go slip into his DMs and go, here you go, Tim. The first time a woman will ever claim you ruined her. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not as tight. He's like, I, I'm not even trying. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, right? Like, I'm just getting started. Uh, do you see yourself going back to anything with food? Because it seems like you really enjoyed it. I had a Twitch channel I did, where I yeah. was doing a bunch of cooking, so I'm also a huge foodie. Yeah, I mean, I I do have a passion for it. I do love it. I I you know I I have a show that I've pitched around town. <laughs> By the way, like every time I get a network interested in this show, some shit blows up and the interest goes mm. away. I was literally just you know pitching this show again uh, for the first time in years. But uh, I have a show that I want to do called Cheat Day, which essentially is me uh, interviewing celebrities and athletes and stuff about what their favorite cheat day meal mm-hmm. is. And and the story behind it, like maybe it was something their mom made or something they grew up with or something cultural that reminds them of their culture. Um, and then the flip side is after we spend a day exploring that, I have to do whatever they do to recover from their cheat day. So like imagine <laughs> like I'm talking to an NFL player and we go do their cheat day meal, but the next day I have to go do their training with them and get my ass kicked. Mm-hmm. Um, to recover from that cheat day. And I always thought that would be a really fun show um, to do. And I pitched that around and everybody loved it. And they hate that I own it. Uh (laughs) They hate that I registered that concept and that I have to be the one to do it because they love it. So many people are just like, you're too fucking controversial. We could never do something like that. Oh, man. You know, I, I loved doing the food thing. I just wanted to dive into people more in that thing. So, and, and listen, like, what a lot of people said in this, in this mired in this controversy is like, man, food is supposed to be the thing that brings people together. Mm-hmm. And um, I agree with that, mm-hmm. you know, I, and that's what I loved about it was this idea that like, no matter where we sit ideologically, we can kind of all get around a table and enjoy each other's company because we all love to eat. We all love food. And so 
Um, I don't know. I, I would love to see a show like that that sort of would take these people that are wildly ideologically differently and sit them down and find the things that they have common ground over and and even let them fight on television even if they don't agree mm. um you know like everyone always talks about what a traumatic experience thanksgiving dinners are with their families and no one's made that a show yet wouldn't that be <laughs> such an interesting show to watch people fight with their families about politics over a holiday dinner mm -hmm. that would be great so you know i i just think um you know i i just think that there's uh there, there could be a future there like you um, and like Zuby told you. I think that's good advice. I always, I've always tried to be kind of open to where life pivots me organically. Like I try not to have my finger on my career so much to where I'm not willing to look at new avenues or new things. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to just sort of let – I'm trying to sort of slalom with where it goes and then steer it where I think I need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you could always do it independently. Right. It's obviously not as easy as people think. It's wildly expensive. Or, uh, I mean, Ben Shapiro's got his own production company. So maybe. Yeah. Give know? me, shoot me a call. There you ben. go. Yeah, Mr. Uh, Shapiro, get your first culinary show with his giant media monster that he's building. Listen, p part of the reason why I think Ginormous Food was so successful, and people will try to argue that it wasn't because it went away after about 18 months. But it was one of the highest rated shows they had launched in about a decade. And there were people much more famous than me whose numbers never came close to my numbers. Like like Hannah Hart launched a show. She had a massive YouTube channel. She launched a show right around when my show started. She did half the viewership. Jeff Dunham and his wife, who are wildly famous people, uh, launched a show around the same time my show launched. They did half the numbers. Um, and so... Uh, the show was syndicated in 14 countries. Listen, part of the reason people tuned into that is because a lot of people don't fucking like me. You know what I mean? And like, there were a lot of people that tuned in to watch me fail. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, this is what's amazing to me about television is like, eyes are eyes. Like, mm -hmm. you know, and there's value there. And if you guys looked at your business objectively, you would say whether this guy is loved or hated, a lot of people are going to watch him. And I would think at some point there might be a television executive brave enough to go, fuck it. If people don't like this guy, if we put him on the air, people are going to watch mm -hmm. and you know, let's, let's just see where that goes. And, and with the advent of new platforms like Ben's or like censored TV, where I'm at, um, you know, my boss, Gavin McInnes at censored TV is like, do whatever you want to do. Like I, there is no line in terms of what you want to make fun of, what jokes you want to make, how fucked up you want them to be. And do you have any idea how liberating it is to create in that environment to be like, there's nothing I have to go, oh, that's so funny, but we could never do it, mm -hmm. which is a, something that is said in every writer's room in America every day. And I'm allowed to sit down and go, how, how can I, what line can I obliterate this week <laughs> on the show? So, you know, and that's fun. It's fun to live in that space. I feel, I feel like I'm the only guy that gets to live in that space. And so, you know, but I, I don't know. Our we'll see. Like I, I do think. Like are clubs when you're um, on tour, do you, are you allowed to just say what you want or can you be disinvited or banned? How does that work? Yeah, there are. Listen, it depends on the owner, the owner, if the and a lot of times if the owner doesn't like your stance on things, they don't, you know, they just won't book oh, you. Wow. And there, I'm sure there are a lot of places that won't book me because they just disagree. Like the place people that have never met me won't book me because they don't like that I'm controversial. Mm. But um, uh, and, and a lot of club owners are pussies. They just don't want the smoke. Mm. 
So unless you're like somebody who's going to guaranteed sell out a venue, they're very apprehensive to bring in anybody who could cause any controversy or stir for their business. Um, But then there are some club owners who are like, yeah, man, I like it. Like they're all about it. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. Fuck them. I'll book you. I've had, I've had three club owners reach out to me and go, I'll book you out of fucking spite. (laughs) I will bring you here to say fuck you to people that don't want me to bring you here. And I was like, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's like, there are those moments of, of, but it's very, you know, they're running businesses at the end of the day, Candace. And most people will take the cage versus the, the, the grass and the 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 uh what's where do lions play out there the savannah jungle savannah that's that's the word i was looking for (laughs) out on the savannah yes yeah they will uh they would rather stay in the cage so i listen i respect them it's their business uh as much as i have the freedom to do what i want to do they have the freedom to endorse it or not or to participate in it or not i would never and you're never gonna hear me bitch like not enough places book me because i'm just being myself like it's, it is what it is. That's capitalism. If places don't want to work with me because of what I think, I don't want to work. I don't want to bring them a fucking dollar, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'll figure it out. I'll figure out what touring looks like. I've had people, you don't have any dates on your calendar. You're not doing anything. It's like, I, I've already been very clear, as was Chrissy Mayer, that I won't perform anywhere that is demanding vaccines from anyone, like performers, audience, and the like. I just won't participate in that. Um, so I've done some stuff locally here and I've, I've branched out to a couple clubs here and there, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, is touring going to be harder, uh, because of who I am probably, but, um, I'm okay with that. There's not a listen until you're like selling out your own venues, like Joe Rogan and Tim Dillon, there's not a lot of money in touring anyway. Mm. This is what I never understood is like, I make as much money staying in town and doing my little web show and, and doing brand stuff. Um, like, uh, and and um, I play a little poker as well. I make some money playing poker, which is a, a passion of mine. I think it keeps my mind sharp. But I make about as much money in town as I do leaving town to do mid-level clubs. So like a lot of people don't realize, but like a mid-level club will pay you maybe like 1600 bucks for four to six shows over a weekend. So you're making about three to 400 a show after hotel flight and everything else and some of those places will pay you like two grand but you got to pay for your own flight your own hotel so you're walking away with a thousand bucks over three or four shows and that's the club life Mm -hmm. now you can make a living doing that but man it's like if i can make that money staying in town and being creative um why would i why would i circumvent or or stop being myself for making like very mediocre money do you know what Mm -hmm. i mean so, you know, when you're getting, when you're the level where you're doing small theaters or you're selling out venues and you're taking the full door, um, you know, that's, that's wild. But if you think about it, like for me to make what a club would guarantee me, uh, I could sell 25 or $30 tickets and sell 30 tickets to a venue and make a thousand dollars. Like, so I could go to, I could literally go to Huntington beach and draw those numbers, 30 people in a small room. Um, and sell those tickets and make a thousand dollars doing that versus getting on a plane, going to another state, doing six fucking shows. Um, so it's like, there's really not that that's really not an end game. That's like as profitable as people make it sound like the world of doing comedy clubs is like, it's, it's a pimp game, right? Like it's probably akin to, and I have some experience with the numbers from other friends of mine that worked in the adult industry, but I'd have like girls tell me like, oh yeah, like I did a shoot in Phoenix and it was 5,000, but I had to pay for my own flight, my own hotel. My manager and agent took like 30%. 
And it's like, so she's walking home with like, you know, she got five grand. She's walking home with two and her holes are sore. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, <laughs> yeah. so, so it's like the money, the, the money on the top end is never what the money is on the back end. You got to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. So there's a big chunk of that money as well. So, you know, it's like, it's, it, people make it sound like I'm walking away from tens of thousands of dollars at the level of comedy I'm at by, by not being safe. And it's like, that's not the money where no one's paying that. No clubs are paying that to to people that aren't drawing their own draw. So I would rather stay home and do my podcast and do my web show and build my audience and then just get to a point where I'm filling rooms on my own and sell the tickets myself and make all of the money. Mm -hmm. Even if I have to do that at a barbecue restaurant or a fish market or, you know, some unconventional. I was going to say you could double dip, right? So if you did want to revamp some version of a food show, you could be traveling and then just scout some locations that you wanted to go. And then during the day or at late afternoon, pop over, film that and then head over to to do your stand up. That's what I wanted to do when I was doing ginormous food was I was I was like hammering my booking agent at UTA at the time. Like, hey, man, like get me gigs at night where I'm usually done filming by four in the afternoon. Like, get me stand up gigs at night. And he never did. Just never. did. And, you know, so like when they dropped me, when the first controversy happened in 2018, I was like, I was I've been with you guys for a year. You haven't gotten me a fucking thing. Mm-hmm. Like you haven't like the show I got entirely on my own. No, no agent or manager sent me out on that. Like. That entire thing I got by myself and didn't have any agent or manager before that. And so I, I signed with one of the biggest agencies in Los Angeles and they couldn't bring me a single paycheck in in almost 18 months. Oh, wow. That's surprising. So it was like, yeah, it was just like they were like, yeah, we can't continue to work with you. And I was or they were like, it was funny because their wording was like, we have to let you go. And I was like, first of all, I thought you guys worked for me. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting how the, the mentality is, is that I work for you, but your job is to get me work. Mm-hmm. So you're firing me as an employer of yours. All right. Like, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, and it's but they weren't I didn't lose anything like they weren't giving me they got me a meeting. They got me a meeting with uh, a company called Magical Elves that does Top Chef. And I pitched some shows to them. And then right after I pitched those shows is when the controversy happened and they let me go. So, you know, but listen, a lot of the people that make that kind of television are choosing the cage over the Savannah. Mm -hmm. You know, they are their ideas like we just want to be in television. So we shut the fuck up and we do what we're told and we just make the shows they tell us to make. And we just there's no creativity there. Like people get into everybody. It's like it's like Duff said, everyone gets into television to be Anthony Bourdain and we all end up being, you know, uh (laughs) guy fieri or um you know you just sort of end up being one of these like faceless hosts that has no real opinion or stance on things and you know and guy at least on one hand like guy has built a total brand right so like he is a he's a real star mm-hmm. uh, but there's so many other people at that network who have worked there for decades and they just they're they're shells of people yeah, just there's existing. just no yeah there's just no there's no soul to what they do they're just fucking they're just going through the motions and that's you know, I, listen, when when Bourdain killed himself, I was like, I get it. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was not being cold to it. But people were like, how could this guy who's had, you know, has done this whole life and everything. And, you know, he's he's lived this amazing, crazy life. And I was like, no, I get there's another side to it that a lot of people don't understand. And there's a lot of like just to be allowed to exist in that space. You have to give away a lot of yourself. And and for somebody who dealt with the demons that he dealt with, uh, I, I understand it. Right. I, it's sad. 
to me when anyone makes that choice, but I understand it. And I can, you know, I, I can, I can see where somebody would feel like they just gave so much of themselves away that there's nothing left for them for themselves. You know, did you watch Roadrunner? Uh, no, it's in my queue. I can't wait Oof, to watch it. It it was good. It was really, really sad. Ugh. I just watched the Val Kilmer documentary and I like was like damn near bawling watching it because I he was like my hero growing up as an actor. Like I loved him. I loved that he was weird. I loved that he had such range. Like his character is Mad Mardigan and Will Willow was my favorite movie as a kid. And his character's Mad Mardigan was like my absolute like favorite actor character in any movie. Like he I didn't like he man. I didn't like like he was like my dude. And then like, did you watch it? Mm-mm. My name is Val. No. Oh, it's hard. It's heartbreaking. So I did, I did not know that he had gotten horrendous throat cancer um, over the last like so many years. And now he can't speak and he speaks with like one of those holes in his mm-hmm. throat. Oh, my God. And it's just like, again, it's like watching one of your heroes, you know, like sl- die a slow death in front of you. But he's got this uh, incredible existential sense of self and life in the world and his spiritualism. And and it's like in a weird way, it's like. Uh, to watch somebody approach their death and to say he he literally at one point says I'm not afraid of dying because I don't believe in death and you almost chuckle to yourself like okay well that's a little weird but when he ex- when he expands on that and he explains that like when you pull out and you look and you see the world as like all one life and all one thing in this connective sort of spiritual journey and ride that we're all on together. You're like, man, what a powerful thing to be able to look death in the face and not be afraid, you know? Yeah, I think that's where everyone should hope to be, right? Like that mm-hmm. sounds like yeah. you you lived and it was intentionally. And I think that's the only way that you can have that stance is I'm not afraid to die because there is no death. That's really beautiful. Yeah, it's it's such a powerful thing. And it's it's a really well-made documentary too. Apparently he like filmed uh, he took a camera with him like on every set he's ever been on. So there's all this un- never before seen footage of behind the scenes of his movies and, and um, you know, and his kids are in the movie. His son, Jack narrates the film because obviously with his voice, he can't really narrate the film. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's, I love a good documentary and I love a good story. And, and that was like, you know, watching that, I was like, man, this is like so wild. And it's interesting. Cause you know, my girlfriend wasn't very familiar with Val Kilmer's work. She's like, I don't think I've ever seen any of his movies. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy's a, like he's a he's he's probably the most talented actor to have made so many wrong choices <laughs> in terms of like he made this choice and the thing he passed on to do that movie was much more wildly successful. And so like at almost every jaunt of his career, he went left when he should have went right. And there was much more accolade and prosperity on the right and he went the other direction because maybe it's what stimulated him creatively more or whatever but there's so many people that probably looked at at val kilmer's career and were like oh dude you like have no clue like you have no idea what you're doing and i look at it and see like man the things he did well though he really nailed like the movie kiss kiss bang bang is one of my all-time favorite movies and he plays a gay private investigator in that movie and he's so great um the doors like i think the doors movie so many people like it it just gets slept on in terms of biopics 
And so, you know, but it's, yeah, it, that's a great doc too. So we'll trade doc recommendations. There we go. Yeah. Go watch, go watch the Val Kilver documentary. I'll go watch Roadrunner. Yeah. It's, it's been on my to watch list for a while now. Yeah. You're going to cry. I think you're going to cry. Yeah. It's, it's very, I'm, I'm really turning into a soft bitch as I get older. <laughs> it man. happens like to all of us. It's, it's hard for me to watch stuff like that and not get choked up, you know? Oh yeah. Because I feel like it becomes more relatable. You're like, you can see it either in your life or a loved one's life and it all just it becomes more i guess 3d than when you're super young and head in the clouds and think that the world is made of jelly beans and there's no wrongdoing and then when you see these dark stories as you get older like man you know to some level i get it well and also like there's tra everyone has tragedy right yeah. like no matter how great someone's life looks there's trauma and there's tragedy mm -hmm. and there's there's depth mm -hmm. and um you know i i just think uh that's what makes people interesting like i don't give a shit about all the right choices people <laughs> made in their lives or the easy ones i want to see the ugly stuff i want to see i want to see the warts mm -hmm. like i want to see the parts that they don't want other people to see mm -hmm. because that's where i think we can really relate to each other on a human level mm -hmm. it's easy to like people for the the likable stuff like it's hard you know you hear people say like oh the, i love that person warts and all and i think we've become we, we've become a society that wants to pretend there are no warts anymore mm -hmm. and um you know that's Social media plays a big part of that. And that, I think that's also why my shifts in like the valuing of life has changed in the conversation around things like abortion or the death penalty have changed for me because um, I think I look at the way we've become so cold to each other through social media and technology. And I think uh, I, like a lot of other people, are clamoring for ways to find more humanity and human connection than other people. Um like I, I, you talked about how the pandemic has changed us. Like, I feel like I'm much more likely to strike up a conversation with a total stranger now than I was before the pandemic, because for so long, that wasn't even an option. Mm -hmm. And, you know, during shutdowns and things like that. And, and, you know, so, and my favorite thing about traveling the country, whether it be shooting a TV show or doing live standup is like, it, ask anyone who's ever come to one of my shows. Like I don't go away at the end of a show. I'll literally walk off stage and go sit in the audience and talk with people or go like there's, and there's like some comedians, like I have to keep maintain some level of mysticism. I have to disappear after the show mm -hmm. so that the, the magic can permeate the audience and I can continue to be larger than life. And like, dude, I'll never be that way. I will literally be the guy who's like shaking hands and talking to people until four in the morning after a show, because that will make the next show better mm -hmm. and the next show better and the next show better. Like those stories of those people. Like I did a show in, De I did three shows in Delaware at the end of April, beginning of May. And, and uh, the owner was like, we were supposed to only do two shows on a Friday. And then the owner was like, I think we should do a Thursday. And I was like, that's the night of this. That's the night of the first round of the NFL draft. And and by the way, food network ran the premiere of my second season up against that night. So I know it's a night that's fucking devastating. Like our numbers were cut in half Ooh, yeah. because they ran us up against the NFL draft. I was like, dude, Philadelphia and Delaware, those, that's a big sports town. They just changed their coach and their quarterback. Like people are watching the draft. No one is going to come to this show on a Thursday night. But if you want to do it and you want to pay me my guarantee, 
let's do it, man. And so we do it and fucking literally three people show. Oh my no God. Three people. And it's me and like my buddies and the other comics. And then the two of the three people, one person was a troll who literally came there to watch me fail. And the other two people, one was a girl I went to primary school with in Delaware when I was young. And she was there with like a guy she had met during the pandemic. She was pregnant. <laughs> like they got knocked up. And so I literally just started like talking to them in the show and like, I was like, man, you guys met during the pandemic and you're like, you're just like, fuck it. Let's have kids together. Like, let's go for it. I was like, that's so cool. And, um, you know, you hear all these depressing stories about the pandemic and these two people are like, fuck it. We're getting too old to keep doing this thing. Let's just get together and like, let's make some people. And I was like, that's, and I, so I like the show ended and I got off and I talked to them for like a half hour after the show. And it was like cool to catch up with her name's Mary. It was cool to catch up with Mary and like, just hear their story. And, um yeah so it's like you know you can make you can um have fun with those things whether they're wildly successful or not and and that's what it's about for me is like just the connecting with people like making somebody laugh is probably as hard and as fulfilling as making somebody um aroused or climax right i always tell people like you know i think making somebody laugh is just as hard or 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 harder than like making them orgasm. It's kind of the same thing, but the idea that you can do it, even if it's just for one person with words out of your mouth is like, there's no greater feeling in the world than being able to do that. Yeah. There's like, a, there's a lot of trust that's needed for that, that dynamic to exist, the stand up and live interaction. So it's trusting the space for you to be your creative self. And then for me to respond Right. So that's why when I was talking about that one um, stand up I did where one of our friends was not okay and had to leave, like that trust was being broken in that moment because we weren't allowed to express our response or reaction to the creation that was being given to us. So there's definitely a level of intimacy when it comes to stand up and the crowd, I would imagine. did you think that was a fair comparison in that Twitter thread when I said, like, uh, I can't help what makes me funny and or makes me laugh any more than someone can help what turns them on? Do you feel like that's a similar thing of, like, there there can be a lot of shame associated if you laugh at something that somebody oh, else doesn't sure. think is okay? Yeah. And it, yeah. one of my girlfriends is always like, don't yuck someone's yum. <laughs> and as stupid as that <laughs> is. <laughs> I love that. It's I'm going to use so that from good. someone for, for – I'm. I'm using that from now on. You just yucked my yum. Yeah. Fuck you. Don't do that. Don't be that person. Yeah. 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 That's such a great way to say it. Don't yuck someone's yum. That is such a good way to say it. (laughs) So yeah, I think think that there's a lot of commonalities there. And just don't be one of those people, right? Don't yuck someone's yum. Yeah. Such a good... That should be the name of this episode. Such a good, uh, it's such a good saying. It's so, it's so on the money too. Yeah. She's got some zingers. She's one of my faves, but yeah, I think this was amazing. Um, Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can follow you, how they can support you and anything that you might be working on? Yeah, they can find links to everything I'm doing at joshdennycomedy.com. So go there. Um, I do a show for censored.tv called Next Week Tonight, where we kind of parody news shows um, and kind of, you know, just shit on the hyperbole of the, that world. That's a world that takes a lot of liberties with the truth. And uh, so we we do it on purpose. We take a lot of liberties with the truth on purpose for the purpose of making people laugh. And I'm sure they'll tell you they do it for the same reasons. But uh, we mock the shit out of them for it. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and then people can follow me on social media at Josh Denny on most social media, Josh Denny official on Facebook. And then, uh, I definitely encourage people to find me on locals. If they're on locals, um, they can go to Josh That's the best place to support me. Um, you can, uh, contribute monthly. I do my podcast there. You were a guest on the podcast. One of the best episodes we've done so far in that new podcast infancy and, um, talking about uh, the the bonus. There's a specific bonus show that's on locals called Talking Shit. Um, so anybody that's a fan <laughs> of Candace who wants to get a little bit more of a peek inside of of some of your uh, shitty stories, <laughs> they can check out that episode on, uh, on locals. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And uh, stay in the Savannah, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Chatting with Candace. If you enjoyed the episode and you know somebody else that would also appreciate the content, please share it with a couple of friends. Share it on your social media. That is the quickest way for my podcast to grow. Um, if you haven't left a five-star review in a while or if you've never left one, you can take two minutes and give me five stars and write a little comment. It helps me out a ton with the algorithm. And if you want to donate to the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com and click that little link that says buy me a coffee. All of the proceeds go directly back into the scaling of the podcast and constantly trying to improve the quality that I'm outputting. And again, I couldn't do this without you, so I really appreciate all that you're doing to help me grow. We're in this together. So I'll see you next week.